You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Yes, a lot happened in the last couple of days. Yeah, lots going on. And I, I we've we've got to start with um, Nitsa finally listening to me and my concerns and my questions about Zooks. Uh, Zooks, we mentioned is I brought this up a couple of weeks ago where Zooks has this pill shaped self, quote unquote, self-driving vehicle that doesn't have a steering wheel brakes or anything like that. And I asked the naive question, how does this thing pass a crash test? And you guys inform me. They're self-certified. Well, the folks at NISA, NHTSA have been listening to us, and they're like, wait a second. If that moron thinks they're not crash-worthy, maybe they're not crash-worthy. So NHTSA's investigating them and been talking to Zooks about, wait a second, how, is this really crash-worthy? So, Michael, what's the story here? So, you know, as it turns out, NHTSA has been apparently in conversation with Zooks about this since middle of last year at least because in september they filed a special order that basically said zooks you need to tell us what the heck's going on here and how you're certifying these vehicles in 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 so many words um and zooks responded to them and said this is how we're doing it and then i i don't know if that's a communicate with them that that doesn't work or that's not right that's not how the federal motor vehicle safety standards work but, you know, here we are a few months later, and it's his open investigation into Zooks's decision to put these things on public roads. Now, there's an there's kind of an analog to this going on with General Motors and they they have a petition for federal motor vehicle safety standard exemptions that's specifically on the origin vehicle, which is their kind of odd looking vehicle looks looks similar to the Zooks, but is a little larger, I think. Um, and they are going through NHTSA's process where you petition NHTSA for an exemption so you can put these things on public roads. And that involves a safety showing. And you're basically saying, yeah, we don't have uh, steering wheels. We don't have brake pedals or accelerators and all this other stuff that's required by the Federal Motor Safety Standards. But these cars are um, going to be as safe as the other vehicles on the road now that aren't exempted. And they have to make a showing of that. Um, that's what GM's trying to do. Um, I think Waymo's tried it in the past. This is a, GM's been working on a, a, at least two petitions uh, for the past few years on this issue. And there's, you know, there's a way to do it right, which is the way that GM's doing it under the current regs. And there's a way to do it wrong, which is the way that Zooks has done it, which is just throwing a vehicle that can't be certified to federal motor vehicle safety standards and hasn't been exempted out onto public roads. So we're not really sure what, what prompted Zooks to make this decision. It's almost like they're, you know, in some ways challenging NHTSA to do something about it. So, you know, we hope NHTSA does. So, but I they just wanna, I just want to mention to our listeners that uh, Zooks was an independent company that was developing a people mover, which is uh, has no front or back. It's designed to carry uh, the order of six to eight people between uh, two destinations, and it was uh, completely automatic. It was never intended to be driven by a human being. The Zooks company was purchased by Amazon. So this is now an Amazon initiative. So uh, the, the corporate management of this has changed from a group of people who were very familiar with the NHTSA regulations. In fact, the head of that company was a former NHTSA administrator to a corporate executives who apparently are much less familiar with the NHTSA regulations. I just wanted to drop in that background to give people a little context. That's an excellent point. And so with this, with the communications with NHTSA, like NHTSA hasn't revealed Zooks's responses. Yeah. Is that normal? There's been a real problem with NHTSA um, on these petitions for manufacturers to for exemptions from federal safety standards. NHTSA did it with the Google petition that was filed many years ago. They've done it with the GM and um, I can't remember the name of the other little company that was deploying a uh, 
a uh, driverless delivery vehicle. I think and you're thinking of Neuro. Neuro. They did it with that petition as well. But they do this thing where they they get these petitions that are public. I mean, they're petitions that are required to be made public, and they hold on to them for a year or more and don't let the public know that anything's going on while they conduct negotiations of some sort with these manufacturers over how they're approaching certification issues. And, you know, NHTSA issued a special order to Zooks last September. I still haven't been able to find a copy of it. Special orders are something that should be, you know, put on the, put on the agency's website the day of or the day after. It's, it's, it, it's the same thing they've been pulling for years where they're not the public's not getting notice of the activity that manufacturers are taking part in to, you know, either certify or exempt themselves from federal safety standards and put these things on public roads. We think that the public deserves a lot more notice and, and a lot more details than we're getting out of NHTSA. Hmm. So I, for now, just the public, if you see one of these odd shaped vehicles with six to eight people in it, um, drive away. Because and we still don't even there's still no details if this thing has some sort of emergency override or braking system. Um, there's like next to no details. You see a picture of it, and from the picture, my uneducated brain says that's not gonna survive in a crash test. Um, and hey, Nitz is listening. Uh, we've got a lot of AV related stuff this week. Um, Ford is back in the AV game. Uh, they had a project with, I believe it was Volkswagen, right? Where Argo they, AI, yeah. Argo AI. And so that kind of shut down, or they, they them and Volkswagen said, this is not happening as fast as we imagine. But now Ford has uh, relaunched something to improve their Blue Cruise system, which is their advanced driver automation system. They're not claiming this is, hey, we're getting rid of steering wheels and brake pedals and things like that. Is that true? No, yeah, they're not. And it's, it's, I think it's focused on what they're calling their level three and probably their advanced level two um, driving system. And some of this mess that manufacturers are starting to talk about now where we're creating these systems where you can completely disengage from the driving task um, and do other things while, uh, you know, you're in traffic or in other situations. And then, you know, when those situations advance to a point where we where, where the vehicle thinks that the driver needs to take back over, um, then hopefully the, the, the vehicle will. Um, so there's there's a lot of research and a lot of things that still need to be done in that area. Um, and so they formed this new company. It, it looks like based on a lot of the um, employees they had in the old company and they called it Latitude AI. So they're, they're going to be developing Ford's um, advanced technology uh, for the next few uh, years there. Got it. And so <clears throat> just to recap for viewers, listeners, level two is kind of your lane keeping assist, your automated cruise control. Uh, and level three is bad because of why, Mr. Perkins? I, I, I'm sorry, I was sleeping. It takes me a while to <laughs> take control of the. Well, level three is bad because it assumes the car is going to drive itself for a long time and then uh, may suddenly and abruptly command you to take over so if you've been knitting a scarf you have to put aside your knitting needles and your yarn as well as the unfinished scarf and then grab the steering wheel really quickly uh before you end up in the guardrails at the side of the road so level three is probably not compatible with uh organisms we like to call human beings mm, okay so hopefully they uh don't do level three or whatnot but then ford decides to do uh they uh got a patent issued for automatically being able to take over your car and recall it and repossess it this is the craziest thing i've seen this is clearly some bean counter came up with this whereas i guess if you have a, a ford lease or something like that and you miss a couple payments well you can't hide your car anymore uh because ford's gonna get it and recall it somehow or disable it uh, this just seems like it's right full of not only PR problems, just a lot of safety issues. Right. What could possibly go wrong in a car that suddenly takes control of itself and decides to drive to a remote location? How could that possibly be a bad idea? Have you ever seen a science fiction movie? No, I never have. What are they like? 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's, I've seen ones that are trucks that took over, drove themselves. I think Kurt Russell was in it. Um, yeah, this is uh, this has been called a zombie car initiative, uh, and you know, I, I I I can imagine you've got a car that's plugged in. Is it going to unplug itself and crash through your garage door uh, as you're? Sending your three-year-old to her violin lesson, does it decide halfway there that now is the time to go to the depot and repossess itself? Um, uh, yeah, how could this possibly be a bad idea? If you can afford violin lessons for your three-year-old, you can afford to make your car payment on time, okay? Look, I don't care if you've got health problems. This is priority number one at Ford. Well, you know, looking at the patent in a different way, which is what I did, because I think that the, the, you know, I'm not really concerned about the repo process for Ford. It looks like you could switch a few words around and pictures in that patent application. It would turn into a pretty good theft protection system that would allow owners or law enforcement to, you know, prevent vehicles from being used in furtherance of other crime or from, from being stolen. Um, so there's a lot, a lot more to it maybe than meets the eye that, that doesn't go towards the repo process. You know, they have a, they've outlined systems there whereby, you know, police and emergency services and other entities can be contacted. Um, I don't know why a repo situation, you would need the police or emergency services if they weren't pondering some other uses for that system. So it was, it was certainly intriguing at, at the very least. Hmm. I also want to point out this is a patent application. It's not a yeah. patent that's been granted. So uh, there are a few few gates to get through between here and there for them. Okay, apparently I'm just the reactionary. I get it. Just going for all the clicks. Uh, for uh, General Motors is is taking a very interesting approach here. They're laying off people in their cruise division, which is their AV division. Uh, and at the same time, they're saying, hey, we're making things safer. Uh, I don't know how you cut staff and make dramatic improvements, um, but I, I'm curious to find out how. Um, well, they mentioned that there are, uh, quote, cumbersome regulations, close quote, that are driving them nuts. So laying off staff that's involved in, uh, who knows what, enhancing safety. At the same time as they're saying they don't have to abide by all these troubling, perhaps safety regulations. Uh, it's an interesting approach to increasing safety. I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to play out. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what all these cumbersome regulations they're talking about are because I don't see any. No, it, it, that's the thing we keep talking about with San Francisco, whereas San Francisco just lets these vehicles go out on the street. And I have well, San Francisco has no choice in the matter because in California, AVs are regulated at the state level. So they're functionally being told what to do. This is the problem we've talked about. It's going on right now in Seattle where the state's trying to take over control of the city's AV operations. No, it's going on in San Francisco, too. The city yeah. government is pushing back pretty hard on the AVs that are roaming the streets there. Uh, yeah. Not getting a lot of traction yet, but but they're pushing it back. Well, come visit San Francisco. You can get uh, you can take our historic trolley cars, uh, unless a GM cruise has decided to stop in front of it. Um, it will be removed by an intern within the next two to four hours. Uh, but GM at the same time is enhancing their cruise driving system. Now they have, uh, and I don't know what it's called now, but the super cruise where yeah. this is the approach where it's a smart approach that I think we all like where they say, Hey, you have this kind of hands-off driving experience. Uh, there's cars, there's cameras inside the vehicle, making sure that you're still paying attention to the road and it only works on mapped divided lane highways. Right. Um, so they're not making these absurd claims that, hey, we can drive you across the country while you're knitting a scarf. Um, yeah, and they're not putting a, more importantly, they're not putting a button on the vehicle like Tesla that allows you to turn this thing on wherever you are, no matter whether you're on a road, whether it should be used or not. Um, it's also something they should put on their EV Hummers in, instead of the WTF button, which is a, <laughs> a nightmare we've discussed before. Um, one of the, nothing the I, yeah, there's an odd nomen nomenclature issue here, too. GM, I mean, their their autonomous division is called Cruise. Their right. 
their okay level two is called super cruise and now their awesome level two is called ultra cruise so they need to work that out uh I, I'm, I'm thinking the super cruise should be or the ultra cruise i don't know are they gonna have platinum cruise yet next mega cruise it's gonna be it's Cru- getting cruise but um they're, you know, they're talking about, and some of the interesting thing, one of the interesting things I thought about that article was that they're saying, you know, to get to really good level two systems, we've got to have LIDAR on these vehicles, and we've got to have all sorts of other sensors. They laid out a number of other sensors they're putting on these cars, um, which, and, and they were clear. They said, you know, the decision to include LIDAR is less about money and more about safety which is something that we wish other manufacturers were doing this area, putting more sensors on the vehicles versus the cost-cutting measures that seem to result in, you know, or that have resulted in some some of the um, sensor fusion that we want to see on these cars to make sure that um, events don't happen that that have bad out- outcomes. Do you, do you have a specific manufacturer that you're thinking of? <laughs> no, Anthony, I do not. Do you? No, I, uh, I vote Tesla. <laughs> Uh, who wants to remove all? Hey, 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 but before we leave this, I want to—I uh, just want to point out, Ultra Cruise is soon to be coming to a neighborhood near you, because the the objective of Ultra Cruise is to move that technology off of the off of the divided highways into suburban streets, and they claim that ninety-five percent of the roads in the United States will be covered under their ultra cruise. So that's, it's a huge expansion of the environment that they're pushing these autonomous vehicles into. Um, we don't know a lot about it. They haven't been very transparent in the features that they're putting in or how they're planning to do this. We know a lot more about super cruise and, and, you know, as you've just discussed, but ultra cruise is uh, something they want to put into your garage. Yeah. And so the uh, the article that we'll link to um, one thing, you know, in GM's defense, I'll say is uh, in the article it mentions, despite its enhanced capabilities, GM says it still considers Ultra Cruise a level two system. Right. Which is basically, again, fancy cruise control lane keeping assist. Um, so they're still going to be requiring those cameras to watch the drivers to make sure you're still engaged. Yeah, oh, and, and importantly, still requiring the driver to maintain full control of the vehicle at all times. Yeah, which well, as opposed to some of this level three stuff where you, pe- they're literally starting to tell people, well, you can take your eyes off the road and you're seeing other manufacturers lean into that idea and propose things like putting the metaverse into vehicles and letting you watch movies and all this. Yeah, but, stuff. you know, let's remember that there is no standard. There is no federal standard for what level two means or what nope. level three means. You're right. So level to say that it is still level two means uh, more or less nothing, nothing because level two can be whatever GM decides it wants to be. That's an excellent point. Um, yeah. So this article points out that GM, I don't think they have a release date for this. This is still just marketing thing. And they're talking about all the sensors that require, which I like besides them saying, Hey, we need LIDAR is also, we need short range and long range radar systems. So first of all, who knows anybody who could afford this stuff for the next five years. I just imagine, I mean, LIDAR systems alone are pretty expensive. Yeah. they. they I think the article noted that they've been coming down in scale because of so many manufacturers turning to that technology. Hmm. Well, you know, the public and Fred um, agree that driver attitudes towards self-driving cars, uh, people are afraid of them. Triple uh, A released a survey. Their annual automated vehicle survey um, shows that there's high level of interest in partially automated vehicles, but attitudes towards fully self-driving vehicles have become increasingly apprehensive because people keep listening to this podcast. That's why, right? Uh, they show in uh, the people are afraid of them. The number in 2022 was 55% of respondents in 23, 68% of people. And that doesn't even count the three of us who we'd be in scared shitless category. I, I you know, I, I've been looking at there, there are a lot of opinion polls over the years on AVs and some of them, you know, uh, it, it, a lot of it depends on the questions. You know, we see this, the AA poll, which is really tracking fear in some ways, which, you know, people are afraid of them or unsure, or they trust them or the categories that they're going after. 
Um, and we did see a pretty significant rise in uh, last year, about 13% in the fear category. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what the explanation for that is. Are, you know, are Americans learning a lot more about this or, you know, are more Americans turning against Tesla and Elon after the Twitter debacle? I mean, you just don't know where these numbers are coming from because they're based on a survey. But, you know, it does suggest that that people are paying more attention to this stuff. And maybe people, you know, when when they're driving or noticing some of the odd things that are happening with these vehicles and you know maybe some people walking around the streets of san francisco don't like the situation either i think it's people listening to this podcast and then they go on to the autosafety.org website click on donate and become monthly donors that's how we know that you're afraid of avs fred is applauding it i don't know why you couldn't hear that but he was applauding he was cheering he took his shirt off swung it around over his head that was a little too much in my opinion, but hey, enthusiasm's what we ask for. And your monthly donation. Uh, so speaking of Fred swinging around a shirt above his head, uh, I think it's And let's cover a month, oh, one more thing. One I more thing to, before we jump in. I wanted to cover the, also because the advocates for high and all safety oh, put out right. their poll um, yesterday, which is, is along some similar topics, but their numbers were, you know, even more strikingly higher than the AAA numbers and suggest that Americans overwhelmingly want to um, put in place regulations at the federal level, uh, I would assume, and 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 to make sure that these vehicles are, you know, performing safely and to make sure that they're cyber secure and to make sure that they're properly evaluating their environment. They're calling it a vision test in the in the advocate survey. And, you know, the numbers there approach, you know, 80, 70 percent of the public really want something done here. So, you know, it suggests that it's time for NHTSA to do that. Yeah, the surprising thing about their results were uh, it's the lowest level of concern was at 84% because they broke it down by age group. And I assume that younger, the Gen Z, they have the 18 to 26 year olds that they'd be less concerned because they, that's the generation where we thought yeah. they all thought cars drive themselves anyway, but they're at the 84% concern all the way up to baby boomers at 89%. So it's, it's not a huge difference. I imagined it would be completely different. Yeah. And and another thing I'd point out be- between those two surveys, at least, is using the word fear versus concern is probably pretty important. Because if you ask a lot of men if they're afraid of something, their response is going to be no. <laughs> right? <laughs> if you ask them if they're concerned, the you know, response might be yes. And that's really how a lot of people fear at this point. We're not scared of avs i mean i've never seen one driving down my street i've only you know i even hopped in one seven years ago to ride across the 14th street bridge in dc so there's you know it's not really fear but it's certainly concern you know whether these things can perform over the long term whether they're designed safely whether they're going to be reliable whether they're going to hold up transit buses and ambulances and all these other factors we're talking about well i have a concern that you guys will sense that i'm afraid of automated vehicles uh, and with that let's go into the tau of fred you've now entered the tau of fred well thank you and good morning world uh, again fred. so we're talking we're, uh, <laughs> we don't know what time people are listening to this again but hey good morning world oh what is the what is the hello world that's we'll sure. stick with the programming I'm sorry, standards. I shouldn't interrupt. Um, so we've been going over the AV Bill of Rights, and we've covered three of them in the past. So we're going on to the fourth item now. And the fourth item is AVs must respond appropriately to emergency vehicle lights, audible signals, and manual directions from police officers and good Samaritans without endangering either those third parties or vehicle occupants. This seems really obvious, but, you know, uh, police officers are still giving out tickets for failing to move over into the left lane when they're stopping people. There are a lot of restrictions, and they're all dynamic restrictions, about motorist response to a stopped emergency vehicle. This is a very difficult thing to program in because you can't pre-locate or you can't geofence where the emergency action is going to be. Um, you certainly cannot geofence where Good Samaritan might 
wave their arms or wave a flashlight in front of you to say, you know, don't go down here because the bridge is, is washed out. And we've all encountered this in our routine driving. It happens when somebody's got a car that's broken down or disabled or for a lot of other reasons. So AVs have simply got to do that. They've got to respect and adhere to motor vehicle laws concerning operations with or near law enforcement personnel and other first responders in the vicinity of or near the planned trajectory of the AVs. So, right, it's where the AV is now and where the AV is pointed to be going in the future. So uh, there's there's a lot to this. It's both the current location and the projected location. There can be a lot of inputs about where this police action is, including the uh, conspicuous lights that some vehicles seem to run toward, uh, sound, sirens, just the shape and, and contour of the vehicles that are involved. These have all got to be built into the AV, uh, into the AV logic so that there's no conflict between them. Uh, and importantly, you know, they've got to respond appropriately if uh, some human being is in the road trying to get attention and get people to slow down or avoid a hazard that's in the road. A lot of these are un well, probably all unplanned, but un many of them are unreported and would be unknown to an AV if it's basing its trajectory on a map that's located in its memory or some other input that's not responsive uh, and, you know, concurrently with the development of emergency situations. Surprisingly, uh, there's no standard that requires this. And this goes beyond just conformance to traffic laws because, you know, as we said, a lot of these things will happen perfectly legally, but unusually in unusual circumstances. So, this is a difficult one, but this is uh, something that has been underrepresented in the logic that we've seen on the road so far, uh, a very important parameter for the future. So that's all I've really got to say about this, uh, unless there's any questions. But I do want to point out to our listeners that we have this uh, AV Bill of Rights posted on our website. We invite you to go there, autosafety.org, and leave us your comments on it. Um, there may be things we've overlooked. There may be things that we've left ambiguous. We'd love to get your inputs on what those are and where we can improve this. Michael, uh, Anthony, any any questions or comments on this one? So I was just going to point out that, you know, this isn't just, you know, conjecture that, that there's a problem here. We've seen in San Francisco the fire hose issue where where firefighters are actively battling fires and a uh, cruise vehicle pulled into the area and, and wasn't able to um, respond to directions, hand directions, signals from the firemen to stay away from the fire hoses, which a vehicle hitting those and running over those can be incredibly dangerous to the firemen and others in the area. So this is, you know, it's something that's a concern, uh, particularly when we're seeing vehicles that pretend to be autonomous running into emergency responders. Um, and there's active and in its investigations into those subjects. I think it's just an area where these companies really need to get things right. And there are a lot of challenges in, in, in interpreting signals from human to vehicle that when you have a human driver in a, in, in a car, those signals are much more naturally interpreted and, and, and put into action. Whereas the computers and the AI just aren't quite ready yet. Yeah. My impression was from everything on the AV bill of rights, this is probably the, technically the hardest one to solve. Uh, I guess, again, I'm thinking of interactions with police officers and good Samaritans. A lot of things, interactions we've pointed out are you're making eye contact and you're getting so much information off of these kind of micro gestures or little things like that beyond these, you know, even larger uh, movements. I, I, I think this is a tough one. That and also responding to, you know, emergency vehicle lights that's just i see teenagers just setting that up as pranks is hey sure. look at this i can stop a navy sure um the AVs stopping isn't the problem it's just stopping by running into cars that's a real problem 
uh, running into fire trucks. But, you know, uh, it's a cliche to have a, a cityscape where you've got a police officer in the middle of an intersection uh, giving hand signals to cars and blowing a whistle to control traffic. Uh, this is a this is a real thing. It doesn't happen all that often, but boy, it's an incredibly complex thing for a computer to figure out and respond appropriately to. You might also have a police officer who directs traffic the wrong way up a one-way street because of a blockage or an emergency situation. Uh, to a human being, that's easy to understand because you've got a police officer scowling at you and making hand directions, and okay, you go up the wrong way. But, you know, how much of a scowl has got to be on a person's face before a Navy <laughs> recognizes it as an imperative? Uh, boy, that's a tough one. That's a, that's that's a tough a, one. That's a great point, like, because there is you'll be getting conflicting data. You know, you'd be like, hey, go into the wrong lane because a police officer is telling you to do this. But the AV is like, I shouldn't go on that lane because it's a one way street heading the wrong direction. That's absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I'd be curious to see. um what kind of research has been done into these scenarios? Because they're not that uncommon. No, well, think of an evacuation of a coastal city where a hurricane is anticipated, right? What do they do? They shut down the highway and uh, both sides of the divided highway are now handling traffic that's moving out of the city. Well, if you've got your, you know, your excellent map in place, which says don't go the wrong way down a divided highway, um, you, you've got a built-in problem here. I, I remember when I lived in D.C. on 9-11, watching traffic being directed the exact opposite direction that it should flow. So, right. yeah, it's, it's uh, crazy. That's a good one. The AV Bill of Rights, please check it out. Uh, feedback is greatly appreciated. We've gotten some feedback so far. Um, people seem to like what we're putting out there, which is great. And speaking of AV feedback, Waymo, um, Waymo released uh, something that's that's unprecedented in the AV industry, really, is they released their own transparency, transparency report. Um, and their opening line is basically, hey, after a million miles of research data, which sounded really impressive to me, a million miles. And then I asked Michael and Fred, and they're like, that is means nothing, means nothing at all. But I think the two of you are still kind of impressed that Waymo, uh, under their own volition, started releasing, hey, this is what we've experienced. This is what we're going for. And we'd love to see this from every other AV company. Uh, but a million well, miles, apparently a rounding error. We would also love to see it from any other AV company. There you go. Hey, Zooks. It's, it was pretty, you know, it's, you know, to me, this type of work on the on by an AV company is fairly impressive because it addresses a lot of the issues that we've complained about for many years, which is that, you know, we're not really seeing what they're doing on the road. We're not seeing the incidents that happen. Um, and in this report, you know, Waymo lists every single contact that one of their vehicles made with any object during the course of the their that million miles it was 20 contacts i mean if you look if you look at that based on your average driver i think that a million miles is about 80 years worth of driving for the average human um you know 20 contacts might with no injuries or Anything else might seem like a pretty great track record for a computer-driven vehicle. However, you know, this was very limited operational design domain. They were typically operating in great weather in Arizona for most of these miles. So there is that, uh, there's that takeaway as well. You know, maybe it's not as great as you think. And plus, we have the... Statistic we probably mentioned frequently about there's a fatality for a, a little over every hundred million miles traveled. So what does a million miles really prove here? So, yeah, I want to applaud the people at Waymo who wrote this. It's it's written very carefully and very well. There's as far as I can tell, there's nothing in it that's wrong. There are some things that are uh, interesting. And, and uh, for example, the conclusion is that, uh, let's see, I think I got it right here. Well, basically their conclusion is that what they've done so far is inconclusive. And uh, and they recognize that and saying, well, you know, as, as we get more information, we will 
be able to do a better job and, and improve this. It's, it, I'm, I'm quoting now, it says, the results of this paper are consistent with the assertion that the Waymo driver will reduce the frequency of severe collisions by mitigating potential and defensively to avoid entering into a conflict situation in the first place and taking appropriate avoidance maneuver if a conflict develops. They don't say that it proves that it will. It says that it's consistent with the assertion. And that's and that's correct. So it shouldn't be misinterpreted as an overall proof that everything is hunky-dory. Um, but it's certainly a big step in the right direction. I also want to point out that they mention, uh, or they show, uh, let me make sure we get it right here. They talk about 20 collisions, and they have them tabulated. Um, of those 20 co- collisions, 10 of them involve moving AVs. Okay, so if we go back to the AV Bill of Rights, where we said do no harm, and we go back to the NHTSA information that says the standard for critical factors associated with vehicle failures is roughly one every one to two billion miles of operation or one, okay, then what we discover is that the standard, since the standard for the critical factor in crashes is one out of two and a half billion, with their reported crashes, they're showing a vehicle failure, right? Because you've got an AV moving that's involved in a crash, so I'll just say that that's you know high high indication that there's a critical factor that's failed. Um, Although one think, every one every two hundred thousand miles, it could be a miles. failure of the other vehicle, right? It could be they got hit by another car as well, right? Well, I, I took those out, so these okay. are only the these are only the ten where the AV was moving. Okay, it's not where the AV was stationary. So and and yeah, there's a lot of parsing of data that could be done to refine this. But I just want to I just want to point out that if it's true that that shows a vehicle failure once every two hundred thousand miles, right? You got five incidents that are. Uh, oh, let's see. No, that, so five. I just said ten to twenty moving AVs. I guess I took that down. Anyway, if you if it were only five, then you've got one every two hundred thousand miles. Um, I don't have my my logic all tripped up here. So we'll just say one per 200,000 miles indicates strong indication of vehicle failure. That's off the mark by a factor of 12,500. Okay, so you can quibble about whether it's, you know, five vehicles out of those 20 or four or whatever. They've still got a really long way to go before they can demonstrate that these vehicles do no harm with respect to the known statistics of how often a vehicle failure is a critical factor in a crash. And so, and they're not just shooting for do no harm, I think is one thing I picked up from this paper. They're trying to achieve what they call a positive safety impact, which is we've discussed risk calculations and, and, and some of the, some of those things is, is, is a positive safety impact, is it a is it a moving target? Is it something that we've achieved? Say we've achieved do no harm, but we want to do more. We want to continue to build these systems to to make the road safer and safer. Is that what that means functionally? Well, it's kind of squishy because um, it relies on the International Standards Organization documentation for what acceptable risk is, and basically it says that acceptable risk is the absence of unreasonable risk. Okay, so that's kind of squishy because what's reasonable? What's reasonable to one person might not be reasonable to another person. Uh, When these standards are all developed, they're developed without any hard numbers for what safety means or exactly how you implement it. They're all based more or less on the concept of reasonable risk and the absence of unreasonable risk. So... What they're saying is that Waymo's safety philosophy is to reduce traffic injuries and fatalities, that is, to achieve what we call a positive safety impact. Well, that's great. Okay, but what is the positive safety impact? If it's merely the absence of unreasonable risk, then you've got to say, well, who determines what's reasonable and what's not reasonable? There's no... 
there's no standard for it? Are you going to have a statistical test for that? How is that, how is it going to be done? So again, I, I think that what Waymo has done here is a big step forward. There's a lot of visibility and transparency into what they're doing and why they're doing it. But I don't think that this is in any way a stand-in for federal requirements or federal safety regulations that put a, you know, put a marker in the <laughs> a line in the sand or however you say that, that to say exactly what it is it means to be reasonable risk, what it means to be unreasonable risk. How do you quantify that so that the engineer knows whether or not they've achieved an absence of unreasonable risk? And this is something we asked NHTSA to do five years ago, I believe. We petitioned them to force manufacturers to do better safe self-assessments of their own safety. And I think at the time, if we had seen something like this from Google, we just said, you know what, that's that's probably good enough. That's better than these glossy pamphlets advertising their products that they've been submitting to NHTSA for years. And, you know, it's it's something, you know, that I I hope a lot more manufacturers other than Waymo start doing is, is a real transparent, you know, accounting of the incidents and the, uh, not, not just crashes, but any type of problems they're seeing on the roads involving these vehicles. I think it'd be great for a Waymo engineer or someone from Waymo to come on and be a guest and talk to us about this. I, I come on, why not? We're nice people. We're friendly people. I want personally, I want AVs to be great and work and meet all these guidelines because my goal is in 20 years is be retired and my wife and I, we can get into one of these AV based RV things and we'll sit in back. I mean, I have to have a fake steering wheel in it. So she pretends like she's driving. She won't know, but there's no way in hell we're going to have the computer do it because I want to live and be in back hanging out. But yeah, I'm going to give her the, the, uh, the Lisa Simpson or what was the baby's name on the Simpson? Maggie. Maggie, Maggie Simpson, give her the fake steering wheel, pedals a whole nine. She'll be having a blast. I, you know, yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot of steering wheel related issues and recalls this week, by the way. I know Wade, you're jumping ahead. <laughs> you're you are jumping ahead because we're gonna get to that. But before uh recalls, we're gonna hit uh a, a specific auto safety issue. Uh the US mail, this is awful. Uh, it's an article in the Wall Street Journal we'll link to. It's titled, Trucks Hauling U.S. Mail Frequently Violate Safety Rules. Crashes Killed 79 People Since 2020. Basically, the Postal Service is under cost-cutting pressures. No, I have no idea. I wonder who runs the Postal Service, why they would do this. And they're hiring basically some cut-rate third-party companies to deliver mail who are you know doing everything they can to find... Hey, you got a pulse? You ever play pole position as a kid? Great. Get in this 18-wheeler and go really fast. Um, It's unbelievable. I mean, again, my naive brain, hey. Well, I mean, look, you would think that, you know, government agencies are, you know, working to make safety their number one priority. But over the years, we've seen, you know, the Postal Service has had issues in other areas. Some of their postal trucks, you know, have had a pretty nasty fire record, uh, the ones you see driving on your street every day. And (laughs) then, you know, we see this issue where cost-cutting measures in the Postal Service are leading to some pretty shady hiring practices that are putting Americans at risk. Um, That's, you know, that's, not people like to beat up on the postal service. This isn't just a postal service problem. We've had the um, the government ignoring recall warnings from NHTSA on vehicles owned by the government now for many years, selling vehicles with recalls onto consumers for many years now, and resisting efforts by us to you know get laws put around this or to make changes in their process. So you know, the government's not always that great when it comes to you know sticking to the rules that it creates in its own department of transportation. Yeah. It's uh it's scary stuff. Um but you know, let let's jump into that recall roundup cuz I uh, I really like this these this week. So recall roundup time. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. The first one we have is titled Steering Wheel May Detach from Steering Column. 
I, I've seen that in, I believe it was the Roadrunner, maybe, or it was uh, something like this. It was Nissan uh, potentially affecting over a thousand vehicles. Certain 2023 Aria vehicles. I'm not even uh, not sure what kind of vehicle that is. Uh, but a steering wheel with a loose or missing bolt can detach from the steering column. How scary is that? And again, this sounds like a Friday afternoon problem. Yeah, that's, you know, that's got to be scary. I haven't experienced it. Um, but it's it's just an odd um, an odd recall. We've seen it. We've seen this type of thing before um, where the steering wheel pops up, pops off. And I, I you know. I don't know what what that Nissan vehicle is either. I think it's a newer, a very new model that they're just getting their manufacturing uh, going on. So maybe this is just an early early days problem at the Nissan plant that's causing this issue. Mm. Well, uh, Tesla has a similar problem, uh, but yeah. this is not a recall, uh, is it? It's yeah, this it. was weird. Tesla's that just it just came out this morning on Nitz's website. They are opening an investigation into Tesla steering wheels popping off, um, which is, it's a little odd because you would think that if Tesla had, you know, it seems like NHTSA has reached out to Tesla about this. I can't imagine they're just going to blindly open an investigation when they haven't already mentioned it to Tesla. So I would guess here that they've reached out to Tesla in the matter and Tesla's giving them a little resistance. So they're open investigation. Um, so, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe Tesla's trying to resist calling this a recall for some reason. Um, to us, it's pretty clear you're missing a steering wheel. There should be a recall. <laughs> yeah. And this is, uh, over 120,000 estimated 2023 model wise, which again, it's not a new vehicle. It's the same exact design since what, 2018. Um, so who knows, maybe this is, they only make these on late Friday afternoons. Um, I think that's it we have for steering wheel related recalls, but, uh, here's a good one. Fire sensor may falsely detect fires. <laughs> uh, you know, they're just, you know, they're being very cautious. Uh, this is Provost, which I believe this is, uh, like an, uh, an RV type company. Yeah. These are, these are RVs. Yeah, um, this is a 2018 to 2023 H345 motor coaches. So they've got this great fire suppression system in the engine compartment. It's something that I think Hyundai and Kia wish they put in all their cars starting about 15 years ago. And what's happening is over time, the component, the sensor, I believe, degrades and you're driving down the highway at some point one day and your fire suppression system goes off and blows. Oh, I don't know if it's foam or some type of baking soda based fire suppressant into your uh, engine compartment, which I'm assuming causes a significant visibility issue for driver or following vehicles. But it, it sounds both humorous and very dangerous at the same time. I, I literally, the, the recall so far this week came straight out of Looney Tunes. We got steering wheels that disconnect, fire systems that just go off. Uh, and now we got another one from Tesla. Ah, and hey, it's the same uh, the 2022, 2023 Model Ys, where a loose seat frame belt, a loose seat frame bolt may uh, reduce the seat belt system's performance, increasing the risk of injury during a crash. It's uh, over 3,000 uh, vehicles have been uh, recalled. Uh, I, again, people just not tightening bolts at the Tesla factory. Yeah, I mean, that this... I think that recall will show you if you look at it closely, there's a lot of interrelation between, you know, the how well you're protected in a vehicle, how strong your seat is, how your seat belt and your pretensioners and a lot of systems that are connected and, and around your seat work together to protect you in a crash. And a loose seat is is a, a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. Okay. Here's a, uh, another one straight out of the comics a uh, rear spoiler may detach while driving a damaged real sp rear spoiler can detach and become a road hazard increasing the risk of crash this is chrysler um over 139,000 vehicles certain 2021 2023 dodge durango vehicles that don't need a real sp rear spoiler like yeah. like like spoilers are for like race cars to create downward force they don't go in the air dodge durango what's its top speed 
Like when you look at it, it's it's I don't know if it's really a performance spoiler in the sense you're trying to get some serious uh, racing done or if it's more to you know help with fuel economy or what. It's kind of this basically a very it's a uh, kind of a rectangular attachment that goes right at the top of the rear window. And what's happening is as people raise and lower their rear gate, somehow because this thing was put on a, a way that's misaligned, it's repeatedly being bumped or jostled during these lift gate operations. And at some point when you're driving down the road, it becomes loose enough where it can drop off and become a danger to the folks behind you. Um, so bad design. Yeah. Um, okay. And the last recall we've got is, uh, we we've talked about this one a lot. Um, this is, uh, so the replacement airbag inflator incorrectly installed. Uh, so I, <laughs> I want to laugh, but I, I don't, this is Ford. It's, uh, 98,000 plus vehicles. Uh, they're recalling certain 2004, 2006 range of vehicles that received replacement front bag passenger inflators. This is the Tagata problem. And I guess they put these in backwards. Yeah, uh, that's, that's what it looks like. It looks, it's so what they're, what they were doing, which is a great thing and something that we want everyone to do and something that we think should be built into recalls in the future is providing mobile repairs on recalls that allow for that, that Takata airbag repair did. And so they were sending out teams of repairmen to find these old Rangers, which were a pretty big problem in the um, whole Takata recall. So that they were sending out repair crews to do mobile repairs for folks who didn't have time to go to the dealer or who were who weren't presenting their vehicle for repair couldn't figure out a way to get the dealer we'll send the guys to you and so what happened unfortunately is that some of the airbags were put in in a reverse uh manner that basically made them not work at all um i'm not sure if that increased the risk of the actual inflator explosion issue but i think it probably did increase the risk of your airbag not deploying properly in a crash so they're going back and fixing this problem they don't know if it happened on every vehicle in that population they just know that a few airbags here and there were incorrectly installed and so they're going to go back as a precautionary measure and check all of them that well that's good and still if you you have a takata airbag replace it it's free please do that uh, I just thought of something, you know, uh, these, these vehicles, there's not many of them, but they drive really, really fast and they don't have airbags at all. F1 racing cars, <laughs> they don't have a single airbag at all in them and they hit the wall at over 200 miles per hour and people come out of it fine. Hmm. So maybe we all just need five point harnesses in our cars i would love to talk to an f1 if anyone here works for f1 please i would love to talk to one of their safety engineers because they have to put a lot of thought into that and i know we're not going to put f you know right yeah there's a there's a slightly different budget there for those vehicles (laughs) there is but some of their technology trickles down um all right so uh the last thing i think we we got time for just one more thing and this is well actually if i may on the f1 there, there is a common denominator which is that the crumple zone in cars absorbs a lot of energy and there is a essentially a, a some a cage around the occupants so that uh they're protected from being crushed particularly when the car rolls over so that is technology that that is common to both of them and the f1 cars essentially the entire vehicle except for the cockpit is a crush zone yep. so it, it absorbs a lot of energy before it gets to the uh, compartment, before it gets to the cockpit. So there is a common denominator there, and the the physics holds. And I think that there has been crossover between the F1 and the actual uh, passenger safety in a a typical passenger car. But I agree with you. It would be great to talk to one of the safety engineers to find out what they're all about and what really drives them. Yeah, because one of the things in in the last thing I want to touch on is all F1 cars are hybrid vehicles, so they all have a massive battery in it. And I don't think there's been a case of those batteries bursting into flames. 
um, which is impressive considering the temperatures they run at and the speeds they run at. Maybe they're lithium iron phosphates. They could be lithium iron phosphate batteries, which is, hey, the next topic. It's like you knew. Uh, so we, we've talked many times about lithium ion batteries that burst into flames and it takes 30 fire trucks to put them out. There's a problem in my neighborhood where, uh, a couple apartment buildings went on fire because people's, uh, uh, powered bikes with lithium ion batteries using these cheap batteries exploded and set people's apartments on fire. So a few manufacturers, including Ford and Tesla, uh, are switching to lithium iron phosphate batteries, which are better for some reason because they don't use cobalt and magnesium that's magnesium right no cobalt and nickel cobalt is a, a horrible mineral to get because it is a mineral it's fine but the way it's mined is is horrific um it's almost as bad as how your iphone is made um and your iphone i think contains cobalt uh so they're switching to lithium iron iron phosphate batteries and iron much easier to mine uh, but so, Fred, tell us, these are what what are the benefits we've got here with these batteries? Well, lithium ion phosphate battery is um, lower fire risk. It's probably better for the environment, but it's heavier. It does not have the same uh, what's called energy density, which is the amount of electric power per unit weight that uh, is available from some other technologies. So uh, they're also looking at nickel, cobalt, manganese, which has, uh, it's quicker to charge, quicker to discharge. It has better energy density than the uh, lithium iron phosphate batteries. So what they're really looking at is putting a mix of these batteries in to match the intended use of the vehicles. Uh, This is an article that came out uh, from Ford that talks about their options available and you know, happily, the consumer is not going to have to decide on which battery chemistry they want. The consumer is going to have to decide whether they want the longer range batteries, which could be uh, including more of the nickel, cobalt, manganese composition, or whether they want the lithium iron phosphate batteries. So, you know, that's a question of the performance that you're going to get out of it, how long you'll be able to drive the car, what the car's range is and uh, what the relative fire risk is. So the um, nickel, cobalt, manganese batteries that Ford will also be offering does have a fire potential associated with it, higher than the lithium iron phosphate. So that, that, that all sounds like a lot of background chatter. I think what the real message here is, is that the battery technology is advancing very rapidly, they are moving in the direction of safer batteries than are, are currently available, which is not to say that the current batteries are inherently unsafe, but in the case of the uh, bikes the bikes you talked about, Anthony, that are burning up, those are typically very low-cost batteries that have made, uh, a lot of quality control problems associated with them. They're known to be relatively hazardous. I don't think we're seeing the same thing in cars so much. They're getting used to the idea of putting out high-quality batteries for the vehicles. But still, you know, there is a mix of of chemistries that's going on, a mix of chemistries available. And, you know, like we were fond of saying, in the future, everything is bound to be better because the battery technology is advancing very rapidly. And I think what... what better in the future? So, I'm sorry. Sorry, it's a, just another reiteration that Fred's never seen a sci-fi movie. He keeps thinking that everything's better in the future. Sorry, Michael. The um, I, I, looking at this, my concern here. I, I I like these batteries. The lower risk of fire is certainly great. My concern with them is, you know, Ford's building them at the moment to put into their Mustang Mach-E's, which are relatively small vehicle. With a lower energy density in these batteries, it means they're going to be, I don't know, it's probably between 30, 40% maybe heavier than the lithium ions we're currently seeing in vehicles. And if Ford puts this type of battery in an F-150 Lightning or GM put this type of battery in its big Hummer, I mean, we would be talking about battery sizes that were outrageous, you know, 4,000 pounds, 3,000 pounds. 
So that's a concern here. I mean, I, I, I think this, the, I hope that, you know, that these batteries as they advance become a lot lighter because that's, as we've spoken before about, that's one of our kind of the growing concerns in this area. And it seems like, you know, there are a lot of trade-offs, you know, this battery is less prone to fire, but it may be heavier and contribute more to crashes. You know, newer batteries, you know, the, the lithium ions, at least the they're lighter, but they catch on fire more. So there's a lot of trade-offs that we're making in vehicle electrification moving forward. And um, I'm hoping that the weight issue is one that manufacturers continue to work on um, in the next decade, or I'm afraid we're going to see some, some bad outcomes. I, I, you know, my personal opinion is that the batteries that we're looking at now are just a transition to a future where fuel cells will take over, but fuel cells are relatively expensive. They're light, they're powerful, uh, they don't emit any noxious chemicals, um, but they're expensive because you've got to have great quality control for them and you've got to develop a mass market for them before they will, uh, you know, take over the market. They're just too expensive right now. But that being said, in the future, everything could be better because they are a lot lighter. They do have better energy density. It's why they put them into space vehicles that have to sustain people that, uh, when they go to the moon or when they go into orbit, because they do have that very good energy density, the very high energy density associated with them, and uh, not too many problems associated with noxious chemical release. So, folks, you've heard it. Everything will be better in the future, especially if you donate. Become a monthly donor. 10 bucks a month. That's it. I mean, that's 120 bucks a year, maybe five bucks a month. That's just 60 bucks a year. And you can keep us going, become a sustainer or else we're going to do an entire episode. And it's going to feel like you're watching PBS pledge drive. It'll be annoying. <laughs> it will be me for an hour. Just being like, and your support helps with printer paper. I don't know. And you won't get a mug. No, there's no, I, I mean, I have a mug on my desk somewhere. I don't know what it's for, but uh, yeah, we'll get, I'll send you random stuff. There you go. I got some random stickers from different people. I've got a half used bottle of vitamin D on my desk. You can have that. You have some nice guitars in the background. I am not sending those away. No, nope. Sorry. You have to become a, a very big donor and uh, it's still not going to happen. A water pick, maybe? You're not giving away my water pick? <laughs> I will give away your water pick. You get to visit Fred in his bunker. Um, there you go. Uh, all right. Thanks, listeners. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.